The Tom Woods Show, episode 1317. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, the 2019 Contra Cruise is going to be coming up before you know it. It is the libertarian event of the year. Naomi Brockwell, a guest on the show, recently said it was the best event she had ever been to. We're going to be joined by special guests Gene Epstein and Brad and Deidre Berzer this year. Join Bob Murphy and me and a ton of wonderful, genial folks for the adventure of a lifetime as we set sail for Alaska July 5th through the 12th, 2019. Get the details at ContraCruise.com. Hey, everybody, Tom Woods here. Alan Mendenhall is back with us again. Alan is an associate dean at the law school at Faulkner University. He's executive director of the Blackstone and Burke Center for Law and Liberty. He was previously assistant attorney general for the state of Alabama. He's taught at several universities. He holds a Ph.D. in English from Auburn University. He's the author of numerous books, and we're going to be talking today about his book, Literature and Liberty, Essays in Libertarian Literary Criticism. Alan, welcome back. Thank you, Tom. Thank you very much for having me back. Got a tremendous response to the last time you were on, and I had been saying that I wanted to talk to you about your book, Literature and Liberty, so here we are. Literature and Liberty, Essays in Libertarian Literary Criticism. All right, well, before we get into any examples of that, I think we ought to set the stage by having you talk about what libertarian literary criticism means. Well, that's a good question. I mean, what I was trying to do in that book and in other work is mainly counter the uh, predominantly Marxist economic paradigms in English departments and literary studies, broadly speaking. So there are really no approaches from an economic perspective to literary texts that don't involve some kind of Marxist or broadly speaking leftist economic paradigm. And at a very minimum, I know Mises talks about interventionist versus non-interventionist policy. If, if, you're gonna, if you're going to bifurcate into those categories, then almost every single economic approach to literary text is interventionist. So what I tried to do is sort of create disparate approaches to literature, economic approaches to literature that people who were free market could consult or try to build on. So I don't don't really try to build any kind of like system or monolithic homogenous way of doing anything. I, I really just try to provide an index of examples of ways you might be able to um, look at uh, literary texts through a libertarian lens. And one of those is just as simple as if you're going to look at a figure like Ralph Waldo Emerson, you're going to examine the classical liberal elements of his thought. Or Henry David Thoreau, you're going to examine the classical liberal elements of his thought. Rather than uh, ignoring those or trying to dismiss them or trying to downplay them, you would actually take them seriously and examine what they mean for uh, their larger body of work. All right. So what about people who would say that aren't you then just kind of being the kind of leftist you can't stand, except you're just imposing a libertarian framework on people? Well, that's, I mean, I, I, and, and to some extent, that's a fair criticism. So if people are saying, look, what you're doing is you're just taking a political approach to literature and flipping it on its head and just doing it from a different angle. And uh, to some extent, that's fair because I'm not the type of person that's going to outright dismiss political literary criticism. I mean, I think it's worthwhile. I think that most authors 
are political in a very broad sense and that uh, politics is the way you you get what you want through uh, different policies, the pursuit of different policies and all that kind of stuff. So all authors are political and uh, a lot of uh, literary texts, novels, plays, poems have political implications that sometimes the author didn't intend. And I do think it's fair to say, okay, an author produced this work in a certain cultural context and we ought to look at what that cultural context is, how the culture may inform the work, how the work may inform the culture. That to me is a valid approach. So this return to aesthetics movement that tries to isolate the text from all externalities, it tries to pretend that a work can be completely divorced from culture, to me, is also wrong. So yeah, there isn't a certain extent to which I'm just flipping the binaries and taking a, a different approach. But I also think that approach is worthwhile, especially when it's just unrepresented in the professional field. You do have a chapter, and of course, this book is a collection of papers that you've had published in various outlets, and one of them is actually about Ralph Waldo Emerson. That's correct. I am curious about your opinions of him, because he obviously, you know, you can obviously see a libertarian strain in him, and yet I know that he drives some people crazy, so I wonder how you come down on him. Well, I have a lot of different thoughts about Emerson. In general, I, I think that if Well, first of all, going, who was he? Who, who was Ralph Waldo Emerson? Well, he was uh, the foremost transcendentalist uh, author in the 19th century, and uh, he is known for his uh, essays, for his poetry, for his speaking. He made a career as an orator and uh, gave lectures all over uh, New England. Now, it's unusual for a Southerner like me to admire Emerson. Most, most Southern literary critics uh, despise Emerson. There's sort of a tradition of that. So I'm, I'm a little bit of an outlier in that. And there are things I don't like about Emerson. So I am a pretty uh, traditional Calvinist Presbyterian. And Emerson's essays, The Oversoul, and uh, even some of his ideas – and self-reliance are uh, not exactly orthodox when it comes to to Christian belief. Transcendentalism itself is uh, very problematic. It it has a lot in common with uh, Unitarianism, and Ralph Waldo Emerson was not welcome at Harvard for a a lot of his career, if we could imagine it now, because he was preaching things that were, let's say, heterodox. And uh, I would agree that a lot of Emerson's beliefs are, are problematic in that respect. He does tend to exalt the individual to the uh, position of deity. You know, I think that that is a little problematic. I'm a much more skeptical about the capacity of human reason than Emerson is. Emerson had a lot of confidence in the powers of the human mind. And I do agree with him that the human mind has awesome powers and can accomplish great things. But I don't want to uh, exalt it beyond what it appropriately should be. By the same token, I admire Emerson for his position on self-reliance, for saying a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds, for criticizing people that just go along with the crowd and think what others think. I think that, uh, you know, as Immanuel Kant said, freedom from yourself incurred tutelage is what enlightenment is. You need to be able to think for yourself and not just consult what what does this person think and that's what I ought to think you know you ought to you ought to come to your conclusions on your own through your own exercise of reason rather than just saying okay 
here's person A, B, C, D, and I, uh, I, I agree with that, what they say most of the time. So I'm just going to look and see what, what they think. And then that's what I'm going to think. People need to figure out the tools to reach their own conclusions. There's a lot of material in here on law as a topic that you would apply here. In, there in, is. I mean, for example, just the very fact that you've got uh, the history of the kings of Britain as a uh, work to study in here, but there are several chapters that even have law in the name of the chapter. And then even in the Shakespeare chapter that doesn't have law in the name, even there you're talking about the extent of Shakespeare's legal knowledge and what does this tell us about the educational training that he is likely to have had. So there's a lot of emphasis on law. How do you justify that, and what what are we learning through that lens? Well, in a certain to a certain extent, I can't help it. You know, I'm trained as a lawyer, so when I'm reading literary texts that involve law or that implicate law in some way, I'm going to pick up on that more than probably other people are. And that Shakespeare chapter, the one thing that that's kind of interesting that I'm drawing attention to is that law schools picked up on this law and literature movement. Um, it's kind of waning now, but for uh, a few decades, it was all the rage. And uh, law professors who were on the left were unwittingly taking all these conservative positions, conservative compared to English departments, because they were looking at canonical texts and they were treating the idea of a canon as completely valid. And they were looking at major texts of Western civilization not just to dismiss them or not to uncover ideological biases or not to use those texts as a way to make a more impressive political argument for present times, but to draw out the legal themes in those texts and to uh, look at questions of jurisprudence that were big questions that you know are kind of perennial. And just doing that, they were doing some conservative work and didn't realize it. And now English departments have splintered into so many sub-disciplines, and there's just really not a coherent curriculum that for a while I was hopeful that this law and literature movement might replace what was lacking in English departments and might actually create some sort of core curriculum. But uh, because of all the failures of law schools and legal education and the crisis that's going on there, legal educators have sort of cut back on that type of research. And uh, I think that's not necessarily a bad thing either. But yeah, I can't help it but highlight sort of the legal elements of X. And you find that the law plays a significant role in all kinds of novels and uh, is really fundamental to culture insofar as institutions tend to follow culture and laws are what holds together the institutions. Your chapter, A Tale of the Rise of Law, basically says that it's like a, a history of England that is based on the idea of law and England and their histories being intertwined, that we cannot have one without the other. Yeah, I think that's true. I think once people form themselves into civil society, the first thing they do is try to establish what rules that society will be governed by. So whether that's some form of social compact or whether it's a constitution or whether it's some contract, I mean, we look at something like, you know, the Mayfeller Compact or early constitutions, or even if you look at, just going way back, if you look at Magna Carta, English Bill of Rights, there are always sort of ways that people try to formulate a document that sets the framework in which the rules are going to operate. 
And I think the societies that try to centrally design or centrally plan by being too ambitious, or as in the case with the French Revolution and the Declaration of Rights of Man, where they tried to be too ideological, rather than letting sort of the trips fall where they may, and they've just established sort of a basic general framework, and then within those structures, let people work out issues of federalism and work out issues of competition. You know, societies that try to plan too much to overplan are the ones that uh, have failed constitutions and, and, and failed basic frameworks of government. Your chapter on Henry Hazlitt, I thought, was going to center around his novel, Time Will Run Back. And I thought, oh, Alan, go easy on him. He's an economist. You know, <laughs> he's not meant to be a novelist. Just let it be. But I noticed that you made brief reference to that novel and moved on. It was, yeah. I, I think his book is called The Anatomy of Criticism. But that's right. But what, but what did you think? First of all, did, did you read Time Will Run Back? Because I've heard that it's good in terms of the themes. But it might have a kind of wooden quality to it. Yeah, I, I have, and I would agree with that. And even even anatomy of criticism can be somewhat stuffy. I mean, he concerns himself with matters of taste. It would have concerned someone like David Hume. But the way he sets it up as a dialogue, I think, is interesting. A dialogue between different people. But I wouldn't say that's my favorite work that Hazlitt does. I think it's important that he wrote in the field of literature. I mean, I think, you know, it's significant that he was um, literary editor of major publications, but I think he's much better on economics than he is on literary matters. Nevertheless, I think he uh, sets a, an important example, somebody that has the potential to marry literary and economic approaches. And in that respect, he is an important model. All right. Well, I had to mention him because Hazlitt, people don't realize how prolific he was, I don't think. They know economics in one lesson and maybe one or two other books. He wrote an enormous number of books. He wrote his first book, I think, when he was 21 years old, and he wrote who knows how many thousands of editorials and articles. He was an amazing person in terms of his output. So I think also people don't know the breadth of of his knowledge and the areas that he wrote about. So you wouldn't expect to see Hazlitt in this kind of context. Um, there's probably no getting around it. Chapter six of your book has to do with Huckleberry Finn. Now, there's been some controversy about that book because of some of the language used. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I, you although you didn't write about it in your book, uh, we might, in this context, likewise make reference to Laura Ingalls Wilder, right. who became um, at the center of controversy last year because the American Library Association removed her name from an award they'd been giving or some some kind of thing like that. That's right. Uh, so I'm curious about that because it is true that today, if you encounter the N-word, you know, you think it's some kind of a dirtbag using it, and it's just not a word that, you know, a reputable person would want to use so what's wrong with, with releasing an edition of that book that uh, removes that word, let's say? Well, I mean, I think that literature is embedded in history. So if you're taking a book and sort of sanitizing it, you are actually depriving its readers of the historical context. And I think in that book, there was also the change of the word engine to Indian, or there may, I, I can't recall exactly what the, what the change was, but there was a change with that term as well. But if you are teaching books and, and your emphasis is 
the problems of the past and how things were wrong. You would think you would want to present the past in all of its kindness. You know, you would think that you would want to show what words were used, what words were common, how people spoke, and then examine critically what that means. But there's this different approach now that is, well, students are not fully equipped or prepared to handle these kinds of things. They might get triggered or they might have emotional responses that would hurt their mental health and that therefore we need to sanitize or valorize these old texts so that they can handle it. And to me, that's infantilization. That is basically saying you're not ready to be a grown-up. You're not ready to handle these things. So we're going to let you read the pop-up version of this book. And rather than learning to grow up and to deal with difficult ideas and concepts, we're going to let you play on the playground and not be an adult. I mean, to me, it's a, it's odd that we don't address these texts on their own terms and in light of their own context and circumstances and as historical pieces as well as literary texts that just tell a story. They're also historically significant and they can tell you a lot about the uh, period in which they were produced, but they can if you're going to tinker with them and so that you've got some sort of ahistorical version of it that fits your own contemporary purposes but doesn't represent the historical context in which it was produced. I think that's very problematic. All right, let's take a little break, and I'm going to say something that will be heretical for Alan, but I'm not saying you do this for fiction. You do it for nonfiction. We have so many nonfiction books to read out there and not nearly enough time to get to them all. And one of the ways to cope with that is with the Blinkist app. Blinkist is the only app that takes the best key points, the need-to-know information from thousands of nonfiction books, and condenses them down into just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. Imagine being able to read, in effect, four books a day while you're on the go. Eight million people are already doing this and improving themselves through Blinkist. Well, I like Blinkist because I can get past all the fluff of some of these business books, which is one of the categories I like to read. I just want the action items. And with Blinkist, I can get the action items for four or five books in just one trip to the airport and back. That's unbelievable. So I use Blinkist a lot when I'm in the car. I've read and listened to very popular books that you're likely to have heard of, like The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss, or Getting Things Done by David Allen. That's another helpful one. Well, right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com woods to start your free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com woods to start your free seven-day trial. Blinkist.com woods. What's going on in Chapter 7, which is called Literature, Transnational Law, and the Decline of the Nation-State? Yeah, so when I wrote that, at this point, a lot of what I wrote there now strikes me as being a swing and a miss. Because I was, I, you know, I got an LLM at, in Temple University in transnational law and was doing my PhD at the same time as I completed that. So I was looking at a lot of post-colonial literary criticism, which is primarily from a leftist perspective and seeing all these uh, possibilities for overlap between libertarians from all kinds of libertarians, left libertarians, right libertarians, what have you, and sort of this post-colonial critique, which a lot of it centered around the glorification of the nation, and uh, in particular, the nation as it manifests itself in governments. So there's a lot of critique about law, for example, and the function of law in society, and uh, I talk about E.M. Forrester in the book as well, 
E.M. Forrester sort of implicitly critiques colonial India and the sort of centrally designed, centrally planned arrangements for cities and governments in India and embraces instead the sort of Brahmin muddledom, which is, you know, Forrester's construct. I don't know that it's actually a true real thing, but it's Forrester's representation of Brahminism that is much more about kind of spontaneous order and decentralization. And I saw a lot of those kinds of possibilities and connections in uh, post-colonial studies. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. You know, just because a lot of these people are on the left doesn't mean that they have to be ideological enemies. We can find common ground here. But I've since determined that there's a renewed emphasis on nationalism. And we should be clear on uh, what nationalism is because it's a word that gets bandied about in the media all the time. And if it's talking about sort of pride of place or more of patriotism, then I don't think it's necessarily a problematic thing. You know, I'm certainly proud of being from Alabama and being a Southerner, and uh, and I'm proud of, of Auburn, the, the city where I live in. And I think it's perfectly appropriate for people that are my friends and who live in that region to also be proud of that and to be proud of heritage and these kinds of things. But problematic is when sort of myths and narratives get used to validate governmental structures and maybe oppressive laws and those kinds of things. And that's sort of what I was looking at in that chapter. Now, transnationalism is sort of this law without borders. It deals with private international law rather than law, public international law, law between states, law between governments. And I just saw a lot of possibility in there, a lot of, I mean, almost anarcho-capitalist possibilities in the way those schools of thought were being treated. But since then, I think I underestimated the decline of the nation state, because I think we're seeing sort of a new assertion of nation state ideologies. I guess that's kind of why I brought this up, is that I think you and I both in the old days were talking about stuff like this, because that's the way it looked like the world was going. It did, yeah, it did. And and, and even now, like when people are talking about nationalism, a lot of time they're not actually talking about the things that I would refer to as nationalism. What I just described is in this sort of reflexive pride in the state, in the government. I, I Actually, I think a lot of what people are calling nationalists now are very much kind of anti-government movements. And I think that they fit maybe into a different kind of box. I, I don't know that the name nationalism is necessarily suitable. There are a lot of people out there who are trying to resurrect the term nationalism and pitch it as kind of a good thing now, uh, people on the right. But I'm not sure if what they're presenting as nationalism is necessarily the same thing as what I'm referring to as nationalism, at least in this chapter of, of the book. All right. So now let's just look at this from a bird's eye view. You've got a book here with seven chapters in it. They cover a variety of time periods, places, literary works, They've got obviously a running theme, which has to do with liberty, the rule of law, themes like that. But I guess what I'd like to know, because I I guess it would make it a little easier for people to follow, could you compare how you approach one of the texts, either one of the ones in this book or just any text you think would be helpful, and compare it to how I might see that text discussed if I went to podunk you and sat in on somebody's class? Well. The first thing I would say is that most approaches 
to literary texts now are pulled through the prism of race, class, gender. And the first thing that will be done is to examine how how those categories are problematic in the novel if it's an old novel in particular. If it's something new, it might be a, you know, a different approach. But regardless, a, a lot of these older novels have been written about so many times. For example, Shakespeare. There are just so many thousands and thousands of articles on Shakespeare that uh, in order to try to do something new, people have to relate the novel to present concerns which today, at least in contemporary theory, tend to all fall through the prism of, of race, class, gender. Now, I'm not dismissing those things out of, out of hand, but they tend to also look at structures. So all this structuralist influence is sort of Marxist, where you're looking, I mean, it comes back to that sort of base superstructure thing, where you're going to look at how certain books are going to either inform or subvert the predominant ideology which is the ideology of the capitalist or whatever kind of ruling class it is. Now, a different approach that I might take would be either A, to look at the text for its aesthetic qualities. Yes, I do a little bit of that. I know earlier I, I criticized the return to aesthetics movement, but also to examine the ideologies in a different way, not to dismiss the fact that they exist, but to try not to turn to the Marxist approach to it. One thing Paul Cantor likes to do is he presents this sort of free will versus determinism. Marxism is determinist in that people who uh, it treats people as being ideologically conditioned in a certain class, and therefore they will always just sort of naturally reflect those class interests. And it's a very simplistic kind of model. Um, whereas he presents free will, the writer as a creative artist who is exercising his mind and talents to overcome culture and to challenge culture. So there's that. And I, I, I would say you can do a little bit of that. But there is also an extent to which we do say that you are, to some extent, trapped within a culture. And that there is a certain extent to which culture does determine what you can and can't imagine. And uh, so I do think it's possible to look at culture and look at uh, structures and how artists exercise their agency within it, but also how those structures limit what that agency can be. Now, what you would say to be sort of more free market about it is just rather than looking at, at Marxist criticism that is um, reflecting class interests, you would look at the ideologies in a way that would serve to validate free market criticism. Because a lot of people that are doing the Marxist criticism are unaware that free markets do lead to some of the conclusions that they actually favor. So, you know, there, there's this sort of simplistic notion of free markets as being things that they aren't. You know, they, they lead to exploitation, sexism, they lead automatically to war, oppression, and all these generic bads, when in fact, free markets do the opposite and would, in many cases, accomplish things better than the interventionist results that get advocated, you know, so that the Marxist critics are always going to advocate for more intervention and that sort of thing. Whereas at the end, you could say, well, we identified the same problems, but we've got different solutions on how to fix them. Okay, fair enough. I guess my closing question 
because I, I do want to make it not absurd to claim this is a half-hour show. Uh, and I, I'm trying to discipline myself because lately I'm just all over the map. <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah. But I don't think you're saying to the world, uh, I, I think it would be good for a lot of libertarians to try to break into English departments because you'd probably have a better chance of uh, storming the bestie. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It just seems <laughs> yeah. highly unlikely. But let's just say it by some odd happenstance, it occurred. How would English how would it look different? I mean, would it, again, I, I don't mean to harp on this, but would it just be, okay, now we have professors who are going to push their particular agenda on the literature that we're reading. I mean, how would it really be different? Well, that's, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, the approach, if it's, if, if different means that it's not going to be political, then I don't know that it would be different that you would all of a sudden have apolitical approaches. Now, I think there's a place for teaching for just pure literary enjoyment but there are also it's it's complicated to talk about because there's so many different subdisciplines in English. I mean, there's rhetoric, which is examining like how to formulate arguments and how to persuade and what type of literary devices are used. And then of course there's the literary criticism and theory, which is sort of what we're talking about. And that's more of like a foundational course, like a core course that you would have to take before you started studying uh, literature. And that's where you learn all the different hermeneutics and the different approaches to literature. And then there are the classes that are devoted to the literary texts themselves, and they break down into periods, or you may take a class on Shakespeare. Unfortunately, increasingly, they're just becoming more courses on just, you know, Buffy the Vampire Slayer and things like that. But I think you would get more balance is, is one thing. And uh, I mean, I, I think the biggest problem is that there's just there are certain ideas that are just completely unrepresented so that the complete lack of familiarity with any sort of alternative economic view or with libertarianism, broadly speaking, is where the problem is. And I, I, I think it's actually worthwhile to present those. Just It's just it's almost like viewpoint diversity because there is a lack of viewpoint diversity. There is just a complete blind spot to what libertarianism is all about. I mean, I remember being in a uh, literary theory class, and for some reason we read an essay on what was called neoliberalism. And I don't recall who the author was, but there was all this discussion of lumping together the Heritage Foundation and the Cato Institute and all these Republican politicians and all this kind of stuff. And the essay is somebody that's been sort of on the inside of all those things. The essay seemed absolutely ridiculous. But this was something that was being presented as research into like what the right is all about. And it was an odd conflationary thing. And it just revealed to me how much of a need there is for people on this side to be exposed to what we actually believe, because we actually are trying to do good things and to help society. And, they, you know, I, I, it's amazing um, sort of the caricatures that get presented of people that favor markets. And uh, I think that it's worthwhile to present our view as something that is helpful, that's constructive, that we're about peace and prosperity and civility and progress and, and, and goodness and virtue and all these kinds of things, rather than, you know, we're not just a bunch of conniving people that are about preserving the power of, of these elite capitalists and all this kind of weird stuff. Well, having said that, I'd like to recommend that people read this book, but is it out of print? Uh, no, it's not out of print. It's still in print. Okay, um, but you sent me a, like a copy from an unusual source, so I thought that's what that meant. Oh, I just went and bought it on Amazon and, and had had it delivered to your address through Amazon, so I don't know what 
what version. I guess I chose some used version. Yeah, that's um, right. So I thought that meant it was out of print. I, my apologies. No, no, it's not out of print. But uh, one, one other thing I would want to say this is I think that literature departments would benefit from being more historical. So I think it's different to go out and do historical research on figures and historical research on texts. I think that is a very useful enterprise as well is sort of non-ideological. So if, if there's a place for literary studies that can be sort of value neutral, it would be in doing history on literary figures and literary texts. I know history departments have been politicized to the extreme as well, but uh, I do think you can do history that's not hyper-partisan. Indeed. It, it certainly seems that, that ought to be doable. What is a link you can recommend for people who want to find out more about you? Well, my uh, website is allenmendenhall.com, A-L-L-E-N-M-E-N-D-E-N-H-A-L-L.com. And uh, that's sort of the central location where I link to my writings and my books and all that other kind of stuff. So that would probably be the best place to start. Okay, good. So that is going to be linked at tomwoods.com slash 1317. I'll make sure your site is there. I'll link to your book that we've been talking about today, Literature and Liberty, Essays in Libertarian Literary Criticism by Alan Mendenhall. And we'll talk again. I mean, I've seen, because you sent me some other things too. Maybe you're trying to worm your way into additional episodes, and that may work, by the way. (laughs) I'm not saying that tactic won't work, but uh, we certainly have plenty to discuss, and I'd be glad to talk to you again. Thanks so much. Well, thanks, Tom. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right, everybody, that is today's episode. Now, tomorrow, we've got Sasha Hodder joining us to talk about Bitcoin. And if you're not familiar with Sasha, you're going to be very, very pleased with tomorrow's episode because she knows, well, pretty much everything there is to know about everything because she's a lawyer who specializes in issues surrounding cryptocurrency. And there aren't that many people in the world who are real experts on the legal side and regulatory side of cryptocurrency. So we're going to get to the bottom of that what the state is up to with regard to cryptocurrency, and what some of the privacy-based responses have been. So very interesting episode coming up tomorrow. Make sure and tune in for that. Now, I have a website for you folks that you may find interesting, created by a listener, and it's ellington.com, one L E L I N G T O N.com. It's a place where you can get market commentary and general investing information and education. The author provides investing knowledge from his 43 years of study and practical experience. He he was actually a commodities and options broker in 1987, but decided he was not a salesman. So he's concentrated in finding out the best way to analyze the market for best returns. Um, He's been on Bloomberg News as a technical analyst, uh, etc. He says that basically his site provides practical guidance on systems he's developed, which consistently outperform the market, but he gives no direct stock recommendations because by the time the reader sees it, the recommendation may be out of date. And he also gives reading recommendations and guidelines for people who want to invest or just study economics. So the website is ellington.com, E-L-I-N-G-T-O-N.com. You can find that link also at tomwoods.com slash 1318. And if you want to start your own website, remember you're going to need some traffic. Well, I can bring some eyeballs to your website. Make sure you get your hosting through me and you'll get this benefit. Plus, you'll get membership in my private bloggers group and some free tutorials and a backlink on my website. It's a great, great bonus package. And plus, you get a great price on the hosting, too. Get the details on all that at tomwoods.com publicity, and I'll see you tomorrow. 
Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time.